All right, so it's a pleasure for me to uh, speak to you about uh, clinical ethics and the impact of reciprocity and token effect on medical practice and research. It kind of rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, if you're not familiar with concepts of reciprocity and token effect, I think it's... All right, so can you hear me better? All right, sorry, okay. All right, so, um, so if you're not familiar with the concept of reciprocity and token effect, I, I would highly encourage you to think about it today because I think it is an absolutely essential concept for, uh, for any clinician, and including those who want to serve in, uh, in global health or medical missions. So I hope to convince you of that as we go forward. Now, when we talk about ethics, uh, naturally, a lot of us, our mind goes to things like abortion, euthanasia, and those are incredibly important topics. Uh, they're controversial, obviously, and it's a big and relevant uh, topics for society right now, uh, uh, especially. But, but actually, the ethics that we're going to talk about today are a little bit more mundane in the sense that it's something that, that, is, that is very, very important but it actually impacts you, probably all of you, every single day of your practice. Okay? So, uh, so I think it's also equally important as the other ones that we think about uh, when we say ethics. So um, I want to start by introducing you to the concept of reciprocity and token effect. So I want to summarize two seminal concepts two seminal ideas in the field of ethics that I think every clinician, doctor, nurse, pharmacist uh, should understand um, thoroughly. So here's the first of the two seminal start, uh, um, studies. Okay, The first one is by Harvey in the Journal of Neuroscience, and it's a pretty curious experiment. Okay, They asked for volunteers, in this case 151 people, and their job for this experiment is to simply uh, give a subjective rating of famous paintings. Okay? Now, the good news is if you agree to participate, you get paid $300. Okay? And it doesn't take that long. And qualifications, essentially none. Okay? So you don't have to be an art expert. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to even be artistic. All you have to say is, I like it or I don't like it. Okay, pretty simple. So how many of you want to volunteer if I'm going to give you 300 bucks to give your opinion about paintings? Yeah, probably all of you. This is a great deal, okay? So, so, so now, however, okay, if you look at the painting on the, on the third one, okay, I think that's a very famous painting by Degas, right? It's a, you know, it's a scene of the ballerinas. But if you look at the corner, there's a little symbol next to that painting. Okay? And then one on the right, I, I actually don't know uh, uh, um, uh, um, who did that painting, but there's a different symbol uh, next to that. right? And so what those symbols represent is, is that when you first show up and you get this $300 in cash, they're told that you, the following company paid for this experiment. Okay, And then if you notice, there is uh, two different company logos. They're a fake company. They don't exist. But they just made it up. And then they put that logo next to the painting. It doesn't say after that that the paintings are associated in any way by the company, but it just puts the company symbol next to it. Okay? And what they want to study is does the fact that you were paid by a company, so let's say you were paid by this company over here, uh, and you see that painting, does that make you l like the painting less as opposed to that painting where you might be you know, more inclined to like it because you're influenced by the fact that you were just paid 300 bucks? Okay? So the first part is simply to ask people, what do you think? Do you think you would be influenced by this setup? So how many of you think you would be influenced? Okay. Okay, you know, about maybe about twenty percent of you raised your hand, but only half-heartedly. Okay, all right. So it turns out actually, uh, the people said that it did not influence them. Okay, it did not influence them. But when you look at whether it did, it clearly had a big impact. Okay. Now think about that. Okay, that's actually quite dangerous. 
Okay, it's one thing for you to know you've been influenced, right? And then and to acknowledge that as you think about whatever data or or in this case a painting. But if you don't realize you've been influenced, but you are influenced, okay, that's a pretty dangerous situation. Okay. So now um, this is. Uh, a little more complicated than the way, way I initially described it, you're not standing and looking at a painting on a wall. You're actually lying in a functional MRI scanner. Okay? And these paintings are projected on top of the ceiling for the, uh, like for the scanner because they're trying to scan your brain to see as you are making choices, oh, I love this painting or I don't really like this painting. It's scanning your brain to see which part of the brain is lighting up. Okay? What they're trying to distinguish is, do you, can the person uh, um, really, uh, uh, is this person really making a sincere decision that I love this painting? Okay? Or are they saying, ah, you know, I, I just want to be nice to the company because they pay the money. Okay? So if they know better, they realize it, but they're just being polite. And, and what the functional MRI shows is that actually the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is associated with true preference, true pleasure, lights up. And yet you are choosing the painting uh, that, that, uh, uh, that is associated with a company that paid for your experiment and you're giving them a higher preference. Okay? Again, that's very disturbing. You genuinely love it. You, you don't think you're being biased. You just like this better. Okay? It should be very profound if you kind of think about these concepts. So this is the concept known as reciprocity. Okay? It's reciprocity because company did something nice to you, sort of, right? It gave you 300 bucks, and now you're going to like them better. That's not a bad principle. That's how friendships work. That's how families work. Okay? If I'm nice to you... Hopefully, you'll be nice to me. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it is potentially bad if you're making decisions on behalf of your patients, okay? But now you're, you might be influenced by a drug company or a device maker, okay? Or it might be dangerous if you're looking at scientific data, okay? And that data is somehow associated with a company that's paying for your experiment, Okay? And it's pretty profound and disturbing as you think about this. All right. So let me give you some examples of reciprocity. Okay. Here's a, here's a pretty classic study by Dunn. And what, what they're looking at is they're looking at 37 systematic reviews uh, that's examining the efficacy of neuromenidase uh, inhibitors uh, for influenza. So the, so the more common version of this would be Tamiflu. Okay, or oseltamivir, which is commonly prescribed for influenza. Okay? So these are 37 studies that are saying, does Tamiflu work for influenza? Okay? Then what they did was they divided the authors who had a conflict of interest. They were somehow given gifts, small and big, by Roche, which sponsors or makes uh, Tamiflu. And then those studies that had no such association. Okay? And then as predicted by the seminal study, 88% of the systematic reviews that had a conflict of interest says, this drug is great. I love this drug. Okay? <laughs> genuine pleasure, genuine preference. Right? But, uh, but the authors who did not, okay, only a minority of them recommended this medication. Okay? And the overwhelming evidence actually suggests that it has very little impact in, in important outcomes. Okay. So this is a list of uh, of uh, politicians who are paid by pharmaceutical companies. Okay. I I double checked the list to make sure that the Democrats and, and Republicans are equally represented here. Okay. <laughs> so okay, because I didn't want to be accused of bias. Okay. But it's it's actually many of our 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 leaders are paid by different companies. In, the, in, 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 in quantities of millions of dollars, okay? And, and, and then these are our leaders who are setting healthcare policies um, and uh, insurance schemes, 
Now, think about guidelines, right? Uh, when I round in the ICU, you know, a lot of my residents or fellows will say, well, the surviving sepsis guideline says this, the American Heart Association says this. Wonderful, okay? I'm glad they're reading, first of all, okay? But you have to ask, where do these guidelines come from? And do all guidelines, um, you know, represent high-quality evidence and truth? Well, in terms of reciprocity, here's another classic study by Newman, uh, looking at conflict of interest two years before and one year since publication of a North American clinical guideline from the 10-year period of, of 2000 to 2010. Okay? They're limiting it just to two years before and one year after, so, so there could be even uh, other relationships, but just in that time frame. And, and what they show is that the American Diabetic Association guidelines, for example, from 2010, okay, uh, there were 87% of the, of, uh, of the panelists had a conflict of interest, okay? And 83% for the American Association of Cardiology Guidelines. Okay, huge percent are paid by pharmaceutical companies, okay? If you compare government-sponsored guidelines like the NIH guidelines versus specialty guidelines like American Diabetic Association, American Heart Association, as you can see, relatively few NIH-sponsored guidelines have conflict of interest, but those that are sponsored by professional organizations, American Heart Association, etc., have a much higher likelihood of conflict of interest. And then of the chairs of these committees, 71% of chairs and 90% of co-chairs had a financial conflict of interest. Okay. Pretty disturbing. All right. Now that I've given you lots of good news, let me go to the second seminal study. Okay. And this is not a single study, but a collection of studies. And pretty interesting one. Okay. Uh, this is a paper from 2008, and what they're looking at is they're going to college dormitories. Okay, do we have any college students here? A lot of college students. Okay, wow. Okay, so so um, so this is a college student. So I think you guys are all going to be familiar with this. They walk into a common kitchen in a college dormitory. Okay, <laughs> so you can probably picture this. Okay, so they go into a common kitchen. They open the refrigerator. Okay, and they put in a six individual cans of Coke. Okay, no name, no description, and then they leave it there, they close the door. Okay, and now what they want to know is how many cans of Coke survive <laughs> a college dormitory. Okay, so they want to chart 72 hour survival rate of cans of Coke. Okay. This is your mortality for Coke, basically, in a college dormitory. Okay? So think about it, okay? How many think there will be cans of Coke left? Or how many cans do you think would be left at 72 hours? Zero. Zero? Zero? Does, does anybody have a higher opinion of mankind? Okay? It's all zero? Okay. All right. You were right. Okay? okay? Unfortunately, none of this survives. Nothing survives. It's not surprising, right? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you may have done this yourself, right? Let's, let's be honest, right? Okay. Uh, so now, that's interesting. So then these researchers now go to a different dormitory, okay? Uh, so not the one that had this, uh, this cancer cook anymore, but some, some, something totally different. But what they do this time is that, is that they open the refrigerator and instead of leaving six cans of Coke, they put a plate with six $1 bills. And they put it inside the refrigerator, and then they walk away. Now think about that. It's a little strange, first of all, right? But they also want to know what's the 72-hour survival of six $1 bills. Now what do you think? 100%, and by her, zero over here. 50. 50, okay. So, any other thoughts? Zero, 50, 100, that's prop, you know, that's the whole spectrum, actually, right? So, what do you think? Okay, so for, for, for those of you who said zero, why zero? These are poor college students, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then for those of you who, who said 100%? It's money. 
But if it's money, it should survive, right? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So some people might think maybe there's a hidden camera somewhere. This is some kind of something I'm going to end up on YouTube for stealing money, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure. I think that I think this might have been too early for that kind of concern, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Okay. But what's fascinating is, as as at least some of you have guessed, it was 100% survival. Okay. Fascinating. Even more fascinating because I didn't tell you about another uh, thing that's in the kitchen. Next to the refrigerator is a Coke machine. Guess how much the Coke costs? One dollar. Think about that. Okay. Why do people take cans of Coke but not one dollar bills when it's functionally the same thing? Because you could take the dollar bill and put it in the machine and guess what? You get the can of Coke. What's going on there? It's what? It's an ease, ease, ease of access. access. So you're saying college students are really lazy as well as dishonest, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? Okay, maybe so. I mean, you'll have to tell me, okay? All right. So then they want to explore this idea further. So now they go to MIT, okay? So MIT is famous for being good in science and math, right? So what, what do they do to these students is they give them a math test, okay? So this is the setup, okay? So... What they do is they give MIT students who are presumably good in math and they give them 20 math questions, all right? But these aren't necessarily difficult for MIT students anyway, but they take a lot of time and they only give them five minutes to answer the question, okay? So there's a time crunch here. And then um, the opportunity is for you to earn $200 because you get $10 per question correct. All right? You don't lose anything, okay? If you get one rent, you get $10. you get 10 rent, you get $100, and so forth, okay? So the college students, you guys interested in this test? Raise your hand, okay? All right, good. So I'm going to look at you guys to see how you would do here, okay? So now what they do is in situation A, there is a proctor, okay? So uh, so let's say uh, Dr. Crouch from uh, In His Image, let's say he is the proctor, so he's going to grade your test. So you have five minutes, go, you take your test, you try your hardest, time is up, you turn it in, into Dr. Crouch. Dr. Crouch is the grader, okay? And whatever you get, you get paid accordingly, all right? Now, look at the average score. Even for MIT students, this was not easy to get a high score because you only had five minutes. Average score was 3.5, and the highest score was 10 out of 20, okay? In other words, nobody got a perfect score. So that's the baseline. This is how difficult the test is, okay? But you get paid accordingly. Everybody okay with that? All right. Let's go to the second setup. Now, a different group of, of MIT students, they have no idea what happened before, okay? But now they're given the same opportunity. But now the difference is... Students, again, those who want to take it, raise your hand, okay? You get to take the exam, and you get to shred the original test. <laughs> Except on a separate piece of paper, you write down your score after self-grading the exam. Okay? So you grade it yourself, first of all. You write down your score, but you get to shred the original evidence of how well you actually did. Okay? And then Dr. Crouch just kindly pays according to whatever you put down. What do you think is going to happen? Score is going to rise. Yeah, exactly. Okay? So that's not surprising, right? Because, you know, we all have dishonest tendencies. So, um, so our scores go up. But now, what do you think is the highest score? Yeah. Now, now, now statistically... The highest score among a large group of students was 10. So the, so the possibility that a student could score 20 is extremely unlikely. It's probably not humanly possible. But they don't know that, but they're putting it down now as 20. Right? So, so that kind of makes sense, right? And then this is probably the most important part of this, which is how many people put down a perfect score? Because it looks like there are a lot of dishonest people, right? 
So that's okay. I understand that. But then you ask yourself, how many people are going to claim a perfect score? And I want to remind you, there's no way that Dr. Krauss can go up to you and say, you cheated because the evidence is shredded. So, so what percentage of students do you think claimed a perfect score? I heard three. I heard 50%. 20%. Okay, if you're good in math and you look at the averages and the scores, you could probably maybe reason it out. Okay, But what was interesting is it was only 0.2%. Okay? And that's the good news about mankind, okay? <laughs> is that there are cheaters who cheat all the way, okay? But that proportion is tiny, okay? And this is what some people might call sociopath, <laughs> right? They have no conscience because the rest of us, rest of us are human beings, okay? So we are dishonest and so we're going to cheat. But the theory here is that we cheat up to the level where we feel like we're still honest. Okay? That, that's, the, that's the theory, is that, is that we are willing to cheat, but we still want to feel good about ourselves. So therefore, we're not going to claim a 20. Come on, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. That's really cheating. So I'm going to just pick something that, yeah, you know what? I came maybe 10 seconds late, or you know, my, my, my phone went off while I was trying to take the test, so I, I should have gotten a few more points. Okay? Or, you know, I didn't get my coffee this morning, so, so that's why I, I only got a four and I should have gotten a six. Okay? So that's what that says. But the good news is that our, the conscience that we have prevents us from cheating maximally, but there are, is a tiny fraction of us who are sociopathic. So look around you, okay? <laughs> There's probably a sociopath somewhere in, in this crowd, right? Okay? All right, now, now let's go to the last part of this experiment, which is exact same setup, okay? Same kind of setup, different group of students. You take the exam, same conditions, and again, you shred the test, but this time there's a subtle difference, okay? So after a student says, my score was a 20, okay, you would walk up to Dr. Krauts. Dr. Krauts does not give you $200 right there. Instead, he gives you 20 wooden tokens, one for each correct answer. So now you take these tokens in your hand and you walk down to the next room and you hand in the tokens and that person gives you $200. Okay? So now what's going to happen? Okay, so I think I see some hands going up saying it's going up. How many think it's going to go down? Okay. Oh, okay, so it's about split. So let's, let's take a vote. How many people think it's going to go up? Okay, a lot of you. How many people think it's going to go down? Okay, a lot of you. Okay. How many, how many people think it's not going to change? Nobody, okay? So some of you will be right on this, right? Okay? And, and, and so what it shows is actually is it goes up even more. Okay? It goes up even more. And now they want to know how many people claimed a perfect score. Remember, it was only 0.2%. Okay. Yeah. okay. And so this is the token effect. What is it? The reason why they took a can of Coke, because Coke is essentially a token for money. It doesn't look like money. Same as money, right? But, but it, it doesn't look like money. So we still feel good about ourselves by stealing a can of Coke. Okay? But we wouldn't feel it's honest to take a dollar bill because it represents cash or real money. In the same way, in this experiment, okay, people were more likely to cheat if they're going to claim tokens up front. It's like cans of Coke. Okay? This is very profound if you think about it because... Very few of us in modern society deal directly with cash. Okay? Think about lawyers. Do they have opportunities to cheat? Yeah, this is probably, it's probably a, a, a biased crowd here, but, okay? <laughs> but yeah, they have opportunities to cheat. But it's unlikely that even a lawyer is going to take an 80-year-old woman, 
and beat her up and take $500 from her purse. Right? Because that's stealing. But that lawyer might not feel so bad by manipulating something in the contract, changing the terms here without the, the, you know, without the person's knowledge and steal $500. Same thing with politicians. Okay? They may not necessarily take direct cash, but they may take lots of tokens in exchange. Now let's bring it closer to home. Think about doctors. Very few of us take cash for our services. You know, I know there are some that do, but, but for the most part, we deal with insurance companies. We fill out paperwork. Do you think there's dishonesty among doctors? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So think about the combination of reciprocity and token effect, and what does that do to our clinical practice? and the decisions that we make. But if I were to ask you, are you biased by these things? You say, oh, of course not. Right? Right? You might even say, I go to church. Right? But the unfortunate truth is, is that we probably are. Right? So that's the token effect. All right. So here's an example of token effect, in my opinion. Here's a newspaper article in the New York Times 2012, uh, hospital chain inquiry cited for unnecessary cardiac work. What it boils down to is a group of cardiologists does cardiac catheterization on patients. They find normal coronaries, and yet they fudge the paperwork, and they perform angioplasty and stents for years, for years. Okay? So that's the state of Florida. So you might think, well, that's just Florida. That figures, right? This is an article in the Washington Post happening in Maryland. Exact same thing. Okay. In case you think uh, these are just articles and some, some, some isolated events, again, there's a whole book written about this. Okay. This is, again, a collusion among, um, among cardiologists and cardiac surgeons in California who are performing bypass surgeries on patients who don't need it. So uh, I'm obviously citing extreme examples, but I hate to tell you, it's not uncommon. The sociopathy that used to be so rare may be much more common because we deal with insurances and papers and computers rather than uh, with cash. Here's a larger, more uh, macro view. Uh, This is uh, different states. Okay. They're ranked from 1 to 50. I think it looks like it got cut off here. The very bottom here, uh, no personal offense, but that's Texas, Arkansas, Georgia, Illinois, Oklahoma, California, New Jersey, etc. So whatever it is, they're not doing as well. Okay. What it turns out is what's on the uh, the y-axis are how many things that are considered high-quality measures, according to current evidence, uh, are these states doing? Okay? If there's strong evidence that physicians should be doing something, how are they doing? Okay? Some of the states do better than others, obviously. What's on the x-axis? So y-axis is quality. What's on the x-axis? Salary. Salary. Interventions. So something close to that is per capita Medicare expenditure. So think about that, right? More money we spend is what that says, right? Is what? The quality is poorer. Okay. So uh, since about 2010, I guess 2012, uh, many organizations, uh, uh, 26 different professional societies, including American College of Physicians and so forth, have, have been identifying what they consider medical waste, These are unnecessary procedures that are done, uh, some innocently, often because of of the conflict of interest kind of things, Um, and they're trying to get physicians to be aware. And what they estimate is that there is $395 billion that is associated with what they call, politely, ethics-related medical waste. Very polite term, but I think we know what what they're saying. 
$395 billion, which probably represents, you know, like gross domestic product of some small countries, right? But the, what's worse in my mind is the amount of money that is stolen through robbery, burglary, larceny, major theft is actually only $16 billion, according to the FBI, okay? So think about that, okay? Generally speaking, if you commit robbery, burglary, larceny, you go to jail, Okay? And yet it's responsible for a small fraction of how much money is stolen by us. Okay? And I mean that collectively, obviously. Okay? So think about that and implication for your practice. So um, for, for, for those of you who are uh, thinking about global health and medical missions, which I think is the reason why you're here, uh, you, you know, um, I lived in Kenya at... Uh, and uh, worked at Kajabi Hospital, for example, for a number of years. And um, I was surprised that there is no such thing as CME courses in Kenya without pharmaceutical company sponsorship. It just doesn't exist because it costs money. It's done at hotels. There's food. There's travel. And 100% at the time when I was there is all CME uh, supported by industry. Okay, And then you will see, even in global health or medical mission settings, you will see doctors doing unnecessary procedures uh, for the same reasons why we might do it here. Okay. So uh, just a few other uh, data points here. Um, so here's an article in JAMA in 2018. It's looking at uh, uh, 3.1 million Medicare beneficiaries who are cared for by 41,000 different physicians. So a large database, and they identified that out of every 100 people, there are 33 low-value services. Again, a, a polite term saying it was unnecessary. Okay. So think about that for your mother or father, your grandparents, or even for yourself. Okay. There may be a lot of unnecessary things that are happening. So this is quantifying additional services per year, and they're looking at what kind of physicians are more or less likely to do this. Okay, they looked at age. Okay, actually, if it's a if it's a um, if it's a positive number, it generally means it's, it's more likely to be done. Okay, so so age is positively associated with more likely to do low value services. And for some reason, that's not clear to me, but actually uh, actually female practitioners were more likely to do um, additional services per year. Uh, if you are associated with an academic institution and you have you know, ranks of uh, a full professor or other types of professor, you're actually less likely to do, uh, to, uh, do this. But the most important variable is, is ties to industry. Okay? If you have ties to industry, they pay your lunch, they pay... Uh, your travels, they give you money, they give you grant support, and they estimated that in this database, 55% of physicians had received some type of payment from pharmaceutical companies. Okay? So it's about half this room, right? Okay? And if you are curious, you can actually now, uh, you know, because even at the level of Congress, uh, there's been an efforts to try to minimize this kind of influence. There's a, there's a website that you can go to called openpayments.com, and you can plug in any physician's name, and, and then it will tell you whether there's any association with pharmaceutical companies or industry. Um, and it's not 100% accurate, but, uh, but, uh, but it can be helpful. Okay, so let me uh, switch gears for uh, those of you who might be applying to medical school residencies or fellowships in the near future. Does that apply to any of you here? Okay. Again, a large percentage of you. Okay. So think about your application. Okay. If you want to get into a competitive medical school, competitive residency, competitive fellowship, what is one of the things you need to accomplish? Research, right? For whatever reason, they, they want you to be accomplished in research and hopefully research that results in publications. Okay? So here's actually a paper uh, uh, from 1990s, a, uh, a pretty classic paper uh, that comes from uh, University of Pittsburgh. Okay? And 
what they did was they took uh, 236 applicants who were applying for a GI fellowship, and, in, and, and within the field of internal medicine, it's one of the most competitive fellowship programs, so you have to be really, really good and at the top of your class. Okay? And all they're doing is saying, okay, have you published the paper, yes or no, for the same question about research? Okay? And if you had said yes, they wanted to know whether you're telling the truth on this application. Okay? So for people like Dr. Crouch, who's probably reviewing all these applications for family medicine residencies and so forth, right? They're, they're looking at your application, and, and then it's obviously they want to know, is this truthful? Right? It's a fair question, right? And so that's what they're doing. It's saying, okay, how many people who are applying to this competitive fellowship, when they say they have published the paper, how often is that actually true or how often is it untrue? So this is what they did. They waited 18 months later to make sure that there's plenty of time. It doesn't affect their decision about that particular class. But they said if there was a copy of the article in the application packet, okay, it looks like you published the paper. Good. They searched Medline, okay? And then if a, a letter of recommendation said, yeah, you know, this person published the paper, they took that as proof. And then they hired a librarian to do further searching in, in the National Library of Medicine in something called the Ulrichs International Periodicals Directory to make sure that they go at all lengths to make sure that this was actually published if it was. Okay? So what percent of people who claimed a publication do you think actually distorted the truth? Okay. Yeah, you guys are right on. It's about 30%. Okay? And you know what? You know what shocks me is this is one of the most easily verifiable things. And yet almost a third of people are exaggerating, if you want to be polite about it, about their publications. Okay? That is just 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 mind-boggling to me, but that's what the data shows. And then just, to, you know, just in case you think this is something odd about University of Pittsburgh or GI Fellowship, they've done exact same studies for urology. They did it for OBGYN. They did it for ID. It is basically the similar kind of findings. There is a significant minority of doctors who are in training who are, who are exaggerating or fabricating their research credentials. Okay? So then if these people go on and, and let's say they get into a GI Fellowship and they publish papers... What do you think about the integrity of, of their work, right? It's just not, it's very disturbing. All right. So uh, so I think this is something that should be obvious at this point. Uh, this is a paper by Alice Nielsen in, in JAMA uh, where they took a large number of randomized controlled trials and they wanted to know what is the conclusion of this uh, particular research study. So if they scored it a one, that means the control should be the standard of care. So nothing new was found here. You know, whatever has been standard care, that seems to be just as good. Okay? If they scored it a six, that means this new drug or new intervention is, is so much better that this should be the new standard of care. And everything in between is two, three, four, and five. Okay? So first of all, the median score for these studies was a five. Okay? And 36% of them scored a six. So about a third of the thing says this is now practice changing, okay? But I have to say, you know, having been in practice for, you know, about two decades now, you know, I, I've been underwhelmed by the number of, like, practice changing <laughs> discoveries. Now, there have been many. I'm not saying there are none, okay? But, but this is, like, really exciting when it happens, but it's certainly not one-third of things that get published, Okay. So then they broke it down into conflict of interest, right? Nonprofit, mixed, and for-profit. And what do you think happened to their median scores for each of these categories? It's pretty much as you would predict, right? It went from four, five, and six, where if you have a if you have a for-profit research, okay, fifty-one uh, percent uh, said our our product seems to work and you should change practice, okay. Uh, this is a study just looking at how many people actually say that they fabricate data. This is actually a, a survey of, of scientists uh, who says who fabricated, falsified, or modified data. 
or something a little bit more uh, insidious, which is they drop data points or patients on gut feeling or change methods or results because of funding source pressure. It's 2% and 34%. Okay, so, you know, it's a, a significant concern in some cases. But then they also asked them, okay, so maybe you didn't do it, but do you know other people uh, who've done this? And it goes up significantly. Um, this is probably one of my favorite papers. Yeah, I think this is the one, yeah. So, so this is the paper uh, looking at 42 randomized controlled trials, which is doing head-to-head comparisons for second-generation antipsychotics. So what that means is drug A is being compared to drug B, and they look at the results and saying, oh, it looks like drug A works better, or, or drug B versus drug C. So they're putting all this as a head-to-head comparison, um, and what they found, first of all, is, is the conclusions favoring the funding source okay, was 90%. Okay? Now, it doesn't absolutely mean it's, it's not, you know, that it's not true either, but it makes you very concerned that reciprocity and token effect is going on. Okay? So now think about this logically. If, a, if drug A is better than drug B and drug B is better than drug C, what should be true for drug A and drug C? Yeah? Okay. At least logic would say that drug A should be better than drug C, right? But this is the, this is the title of this article. <laughs> okay? Okay. Okay. All right. So, 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 um, so here's a uh, pretty famous example of, of something like this. This is a, uh, a trial called the DECREASE trial. The DECREASE trial stands for the Dutch Echocardiographic Cardiac Risk Evaluation Applying Stress Echocardiography Study Group. Okay? Okay. So that's the DECREASE trial. And this is a trial that actually said that if, you're, if your patient is about to have major uh, vascular surgery, uh, that you should give a drug called um, bisoprolol, which is a beta blocker. Uh, and the, these studies, this family of studies, seems to say that it decreases your risk of perioperative complications and death. Okay? So for a while, I think most of you are probably too young, but, but, uh, but not that long ago, this was sort of standard care based on these studies. And so in case, um, um, in fact, uh, you or your hospital might get dinged, uh, you know, by the regulators if you didn't comply with this because they thought it's going to improve mortality. Well, it turns out, unfortunately, that, uh, that this, this particular author, uh, Dr. Poterman, uh, had uh, fabricated this entire study. Uh, and, 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 and the consequences of this is, according to data from the uh, European Union, uh, more than 800,000 people may have died as a result of this uh, fraud. Okay? And then you ask yourself, okay, what happened to Dr. Poterman, do you think? Okay. So he lost his professorship. That is true. Okay. But nothing as far as I know. Yeah. Never went to jail. Was never held accountable for the actual death. And a similar uh, uh, a, uh, a quote in the U.S. says, I think more people have died as a result of this fraud than those who died in all the wars combined uh, that, that America has been through. So even this, uh, this is a pretty famous person who does research about honesty and dishonesty. Okay? And uh, it, it turns out that the famous honesty researcher had also fabricated the data in his research. Okay? Okay, um, let me make sure what time I have. Okay, we've got about 14 minutes. Okay, so here is a study looking at cardiovascular interventions, cross-sectional study of 216 RCTs. And you know, this, is, this is a similar data to the type I've already shown you, which, which shows that of the 216 trials, 53% of them had uh, ties to industry, that, that there was commercial sponsorship. But you should be very careful here because of the 115 that were shown to have industry ties, 42% of them did not declare them in the publication. Okay? 
So it's not it's not enough to look at an article and saying you know was it sponsored or was it affiliated. Unfortunately, you know in in 40 percent or so they're not even saying it; they're hiding it. Okay. Now this is the idea of what they call spin. So in this case, what that means is let's say the trial, if you look at it objectively, it doesn't seem to work. So we might call that a negative trial. Okay. But of course, you know, you can look at the data, you can look at the results, but there's always a temptation to spin the, the results to make it look like it, it worked or some, aspe- some aspect of it worked, uh, which, by the way, is the reason why you look at the primary outcome, uh, you know, if, if you're in, in my session yesterday. But the spin in the 84 negative trials was, again, 65% of the time. So even though, it, even though there was no benefit, they spun the conclusion so that it looked like there was benefit in about 65% of the time. So that's one of the dangers that what a lot of doctors have been known to do, which is when they pick up an article, what do, they, what do you look at? Okay, You usually skip the method section, which is the only part that you should actually really pay attention to, and you go to the abstract and you look at the conclusion. If you do that, this is what you're going to be seeing, is a lot of spin. Okay, So again, you, know, you can look at openpayments.gov, uh, to look for a conflict of interest if they don't if they do not declare it. Okay, so le- le- let me finish up with this concept of peer review. Now, now what happens as as many of you know is that if you want to publish a paper, you will submit it to a journal, and then the journal uh, assigns reviewers, uh, and then and the reviewers are you know scientific experts in that field uh, who will uh, read your manuscript carefully. Uh, will sometimes subject it to statistical review and will leave comments or suggestions for improving it and then ultimately decide whether to accept or reject that article. Okay? So, so it's called a peer review process. It has, you know, a long, it has um, had a long tradition. It's a good process. Um, but what you should be aware of is in recent days, uh, there's been lots of journals that have been created, okay, that exist to publish papers for free, okay? So think about what's happening here is if you want to get the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, then you have to pay them as an individual or your institution has to pay for that journal. Um, But there are many, many uh, journals called open access journals. Uh, Many of them are outstanding. Uh, Some of them are not. But what happens is it's not you who pay for that because it's free to you. But guess who pays? It's the authors who pay. So authors may have to pay $5,000 to get their article published in an open access journal. Okay? Some are cheaper, and the better ones tend to be pretty cheap, uh, and, um, but, um, but you have to pay a fee, basically. Okay? So, so then in that process, the peer review sometimes doesn't always work well. Why? Because what's the incentive of the publisher. If they reject your article, they don't get your $5,000. If they accept your article, even if it's really bad, they get $5,000, right? So so there's a conflict of interest in, in that side of the industry that you should all be aware of because it's not infrequent when I'm in rounds, a resident or a fellow who will inevitably try to please me or to impress me by saying, Here's an article that says X, okay? And about half the time, it's coming from these open access journals that are called predatory journals, okay? Um, Think about uh, missions or global health, okay? If you are a trainee uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, okay, uh, they don't have a lot of money, right? So guess which journals are openly available to them? It's the open access journal. So you have to be aware of these journals and you have to know how these work and you have to be able to discern what is a good and reliable source of information. Okay? So here's a pretty funny example and I think I'll finish with this because I'm told I have about 10 minutes or maybe 9 minutes now. Okay? So, so here is an article in Science in 2013 and what this person did was was this person made up a, um, a false article. He just kind of made up some junk thing. It's totally nonsense, okay? Uh, and, and he submitted it to these predatory journals, and he wanted to know what would happen. So he sent it to 304 different journals. 
98 rejected him, which is good because this is totally a nonsense paper, okay? But 157 accepted them. Okay? Half of them were willing to take their money to get it published, okay? And this is where the journals uh, exist. Uh, a lot of them are in Europe, a lot of them are in North America, a lot of them are in India, I think that's, that's Nigeria, okay? It's really in many different centers around the globe, okay? And, and I get uh, uh, probably like at least once a week emails like this, and, and I'm sure there are a lot of other people, you know, who get this, but I want to kind of read this with you because it's kind of funny. It says, Dear Professor Burton W. Lee, hope you are doing well. It is our pleasure to associate with an eminent people like you. Okay? And this is written by somebody named Catherine Nichols, by the way. Okay? And then she says, we are ready to make as editor-in-chief to our prestigious journal. So I'm going to be an editor-in-chief of a journal. This is fantastic. Okay? But, uh, but they say, you know, gratify, recognize this mail within 24 hours. I'm not sure what that means exactly. But, uh, but she is looking to my rapid comeback. <laughs> okay, but 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 like literally once a week we get article. I mean we get emails like this, and these are predatory journals. Okay, so don't be sucked into that. Okay, one other funny thing is remember all those GI applicants who lied about their publication. There's a better way to lie, which is to submit it to these journals because you probably would have gotten accepted, right? And that's that's really ironic. So I want to finish with this one. Uh, final example of this because it's just really funny. I, I think it's just really just entertaining just to see. So here is a newspaper journalist from Canada, uh, uh, Spears, who, who, who actually submits a fake paper. Okay? Because, he, because he heard about this and thought this would be kind of fun. And it's, it's actually quite hilarious. Okay? So this is in 2014. He made up a fake paper and it consisted of Three different papers that already exist. It's already been published. Okay, but but what he did was he meshed text from a geology journal, okay, and a different paper from a hematology journal and a wine science journal. Okay, three separate papers. Now remember, this entire paper is plagiarized because all he did was copy and paste from different journals. Okay, this is a nonsense paper, obviously. Okay. And this is fun, okay? He, he, he invented terms like seismic platelets, right? <laughs> Geology, hematology, right? He took random pictures of Mars because they look good and put in unrelated graphs because it had color, okay? And then the authors were baseball players and U.S. senators, made up a fake university and submitted it to 18 different uh, predatory journals to see what they would do. And just like before, one rejected them, which is good. Eight did not respond. Eight accepted them. And this is my favorite one. One said, please make the following changes and we will accept it. <laughs> All right. So, um, so um, my, my, uh, my message to you is the following. It is actually, uh, you, know, you know, this lecture comes from a series of talks that I give to my fourth-year medical students and to, uh, and to critical care fellows in our training program. The, the entire course, uh, you know, takes about a month long, so, so I can't present all the nuances of this. So, uh, so, so I may have sort of kept some parts of it thinner and, uh, and not expanded on them, so please excuse that, but, but also please understand that. Um, but... But, uh, but I think, I think uh, if you think about human nature, about who we are, how we're made, and our, and our tendencies, I think things like reciprocity and token effect should make sense. And, 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 but what we, I think, underappreciate is the impact that these tendencies have in our clinical decision-making and, and, and the ethical implications of how we decide is actually more influenced by these things than you might recognize on the surface. So, um, so I would encourage you to think about, as you progress in your professional level, uh, to think about your ties to industry, who's paying you, who's not paying you. And if those of you who are in, uh, involved in research, it's the exact same thing. But if you're a consumer of research information and you're looking at the quality of the research, okay, make sure you look for the conflict of interest. 
but 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 in 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 topics that are of personal interest to me. So let's say if somebody uh, with ARDS and I really want to know as much as possible about ARDS, I make the point to look up every author in the OpenCMS database so that I at least know what the conflict of interests are. It doesn't mean it is you know, automatically a bad paper. I'm not saying that either, but you should at least be aware of the conflict of interest and the, and the impact that reciprocity and token effect can have on the quality of information that you're gathering. And then finally, be careful about open access journals. Some of them are outstanding, so don't get me wrong, but you do need to do your homework and to figure out which information is reliable and which is not. Okay. Thank you, and I'll take some questions. I think about two minutes or so. Yes. Duplicate publications mm-hmm. can be articles can be reworded mm-hmm. via duplicate yeah. publication. Yeah. Uh, they can be also detected. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are programs to detect them. Can you speak a little bit? Yeah, so, so Dr. McFadden is asking about, um, about duplicate publications. So some author, okay, so, you know, uh, there are many reasons for that, but, but one of the reasons is because, you know, we have this archaic system that if you want to get promoted, you have to publish papers, and so more papers you publish, you know, more likely you're going to get, uh, get published. So, and so people try to publish it using the same data and then basically using the same data again and to publish it again. So that is considered unethical, uh, and also it contributes to confusion because when you're trying to do a systematic review to say how many studies have been done that shows this result, if you have multiple duplicate um, publications, it can falsely uh, uh, you know, impact the conclusion. It's like a person voting twice for an election, for example. So it's sort of like that. So, so, so it's, it's a standard is to not allow that to happen, but it still does happen. Yes, over there. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, uh, so I think the reality is, is that uh, to do a high quality evidence, you know, as I said, uh, you know, I talked about this yesterday, but you know, you generally want to do a randomized control trial, and then to do a high quality type of randomized control trial, it needs to be a large study among other things. So, a large randomized control trial, by definition, is incredibly expensive. Okay. So somebody needs to pay for, you know, like literally millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's not likely that I can go up to one hospital and do that test on my own to, to actually prove anything, okay? So either the government has to sponsor it or the industry has to sponsor it. So in some cases, like uh, uh, one of the vaccines was sponsored by Pfizer. The other uh, vaccine was in combination with NIH uh, and also with a pharmaceutical company called Moderna. So there are those ties, and sometimes when things are urgent or some things are so important, something to be so large, it's difficult to avoid that. So, 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 you know, so that in my mind, I would say, hmm, I wonder if there is bias here. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to say is that you know, there is a conflict of interest when you see those ties. But then what you want to say is, is this finding repeatable? That is, does this, you know, you, know, you know, essentially Pfizer and Moderna are the, are the mRNA technologies, okay? So he says, you know, does this one mRNA technology vaccine work for COVID? And it seems to. And does this, this other one work? It also seems to. So now you have multiple studies saying the same thing. And then if you remember from my yesterday's talk, the real proof sometimes is actually looking at real data now, okay? You know, and so what I'm looking at is they seem to be very high-quality trials, they seem to have a very high fragility index, right? Like we talked about yesterday, it seems to be very robust. And now there are multiple studies saying that it works. Okay? But then, on top of that, if I walk into my ICU and I say, "Who has COVID?" and then I said, "Who's vaccinated and who's not?" It's, it's night and day. I mean, you know, there's no controversy or confusion about whether vaccine works or not. So if you have that level of evidence. I think it is uh, very hard to say that it's not high-quality information. Okay. All right.
Yeah, the question is yes. Back. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, like oftentimes, you know, like, uh, you know, when I talk to uh, people who are going on to the medical missions and global health work, you know, I think this is a reason for you to pray, right? You know, it's a, it, it's a reason for you to have some humility about, uh, about what you know and what you don't know. But ultimately, I think it's a good reason to pray. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, there, what was the question? yes, the question was: Is there a source of good open uh, access journals? Because open access journals are important, especially for the developing world. Okay, so for the low middle income countries, it's really important source of information because it's free. Um, but you don't want to give them the like the predatory version of, of that either. So the answer is yes and no. The yes is there have been several people, I think one of them named, I think it's Beal, B-E-A-L-L, uh, who, who has tried to compile a list of predatory journals to say don't pay attention to those. Uh, and there have been a few other efforts like that. So that can be helpful. But I, I, I understand they've been sued by these, these journals. And so I think it doesn't quite operate uh, uh, in an updated fashion anymore. So I, I, I think it's not really functional anymore. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you. I think I, I ran over my time, so I'll take questions up front if you like. Okay. Thank you.